0: CHAPTER Six. Ask your questions, please, Professor Nietzsche, said Breuer, settling back in his chair. Considering the barrage of questions I have directed at you, three is a modest request. If your questions lie within my realm of knowledge, I shall not fail to answer you. He was tired. It had been a long day, and ahead of him were still a six o'clock teaching conference and his evening calls. But even so, he did not mind Nietzsche's request. On the contrary, he felt unaccountably exhilarated. Perhaps the opening he had sought was at hand. When you hear my questions, you may, like many of your colleagues, regret that promise. I have a trinity of questions, three questions, but perhaps only one. And that one question, a plea as well as a question, is— Will you tell me the truth? And the three questions, Breuer asked. The first is, Will I go blind? The second, Will I have these attacks forever? And finally, the most difficult question, Do I have a progressive brain disease which will kill me young like my father, drive me into paralysis or worse, into madness or dementia. Breuer was speechless. He sat in silence, aimlessly leafing through the pages of Nietzsche's medical dossier. No patient in fifteen years of medical practice had ever posed such brutally direct questions. Nietzsche, noting his discomfiture, continued, Forgive me for confronting you so but I have had many years of indirect discourse with physicians, especially German physicians, who anoint themselves as sextons of the truth, yet withhold their knowledge. No physician has the right to withhold from the patient what is rightfully his. Breuer couldn't help smiling at Nietzsche's characterization of German physicians, or bristling at the pronouncement about the rights of the patient. This little philosopher, with the large moustache, stimulated his mind. "'I am most willing to discuss these issues of medical practice, Professor Nietzsche. You ask forthright questions. I shall attempt to respond with equal directness. I agree with your position about the rights of the patient, but you have omitted an equally important concept, the obligations of the patient.' I prefer a completely honest relationship with my patients. But it must be a reciprocal honesty. The patient, too, must be committed to honesty with me. Honesty, honest questions, honest answers, makes for the best medicine. Under this condition, then, you have my word. I shall share with you all my knowledge and my conclusions. But, Professor Nietzsche, Breuer went on, "'I do not agree that it should always be thus. "'There are patients and there are situations "'when the good physician must, for the sake of the patient, withhold the truth. "'Yes, Dr. Breuer, I have heard many physicians say that. "'But who has the right to make that decision for another? "'That posture can only violate the patient's autonomy.' "'It is my duty,' Breuer replied, to offer comfort to patients, and it is not a duty to be taken lightly. Sometimes it's a thankless duty. Sometimes there's bad news I cannot share with a patient. Sometimes it's my duty to remain silent and bear the pain for both patient and family. But, Dr. Breuer, that type of duty obliterates a more fundamental duty, each person's duty to oneself to discover truth. For a moment, in the heat of the dialogue, Breuer had forgotten that Nietzsche was his patient. These were enormously interesting questions, and he was completely absorbed. He rose and began to pace behind his chair while he spoke. "'Is it my duty to impose a truth on others that they do not wish to know?' "'Who can determine what one wishes not to know?' Nietzsche demanded. "'That,' said Breuer firmly, is what may be called the art of medicine. One learns such things not from texts, but from the bedside. Allow me to use, as an example, a patient whom I shall visit in the hospital later this evening. I tell you this in complete confidence, and shall, of course, withhold his identity. This man has a fatal disease, a far advanced cancer of the liver. He is jaundiced because of liver failure. "'His bile is rising in his bloodstream. "'His prognosis is hopeless. "'I doubt that he will live more than two or three weeks. "'When I saw him this morning, "'he listened calmly to my explanation "'of why his skin has turned yellow, "'and then he put his hand on mine "'as though to ease my burden, "'as though to silence me. "'Then he changed the subject. "'He inquired after my family. "'I have known him for over thirty years.' and talked about the business awaiting him when he returned home. But, Breuer drew a deep breath, "'I know he will never return home. "'Shall I tell him that? "'You see, Professor Nietzsche, it is not so easy. "'Usually what is not asked is the important question. "'If he had wanted to know, "'he would have asked me the cause of his liver's malfunctioning "'or when I planned to discharge him from the hospital.' but on these matters he is silent. Shall I be so hard as to tell him what he does not wish to know? Sometimes, Nietzsche responded, teachers must be hard. People must be given a hard message because life is hard and dying is hard. Should I deprive people of their choice of how they wish to face their death? By what right, by what mandate, do I assume that role? You say that teachers must sometimes be hard. Perhaps. But the physician's task is to reduce stress and to enhance the body's ability to heal. A hard rain slashed against the window. The pane rattled. Breuer walked over and peered out. He wheeled about. In fact, as I think about it, I'm not sure I even agree with you about a teacher's hardness. Perhaps only a special kind of teacher, perhaps a prophet. "'Yes, yes,' Nietzsche's voice rose an octave in his excitement. "'A teacher of bitter truths, an unpopular prophet. "'I think that this is what I am.' He punctuated each word of this sentence by pointing his finger into his chest. "'You, Dr. Breuer, dedicate yourself to making life easy. "'I, on the other hand, am dedicated to making things difficult "'for my invisible body of students.' But what is the virtue of an unpopular truth, of making things difficult? When I left my patient this morning, he said to me, I place myself in God's hands. Who can dare to say that this, too, is not a form of the truth? Who? Now Nietzsche, too, had risen and paced on one side of the desk while Breuer paced on the other. Who dares to say it? He stopped held to the back of his chair and pointed toward himself. "'I dare to say it.' He might, Breuer thought, have been speaking from a pulpit, exhorting a congregation, but of course his father had been a minister. "'Truth,' Nietzsche continued, "'is arrived at through disbelief and skepticism, "'not through a childlike wishing something were so. "'Your patient's wish to be in God's hands is not truth. "'It is simply a child's wish.' and nothing more. It is a wish not to die, a wish for the everlasting bloating nipple we have labeled God. Evolutionary theory scientifically demonstrates God's redundancy, though Darwin himself had not the courage to follow his evidence to its true conclusion. Surely you must realize that we created God, and that all of us together now have killed him, Royer dropped this line of argument as though it were a hot ingot. He could not defend theism. A freethinker since adolescence, he had often, in discussions with his father and with religious teachers, taken Nietzsche's identical position. He sat down and spoke in a softer, more conciliatory tone, as Nietzsche, too, returned to his own chair. Such fervor for the truth! Forgive me, Professor Nietzsche, if I sound challenging, but we agreed to speak truthfully. You speak about the truth in a holy tone, as though to substitute one religion for another. Allow me to play devil's advocate. Allow me to ask, why such passion, such reverence for the truth? How will it profit my patient of this morning? It is not the truth that is holy— but the search for one's own truth. Can there be a more sacred act than self-inquiry? My philosophical work, some say, is built on sand. My views shift continually. But one of my granite sentences is, Become who you are. And how can one discover who and what one is without the truth? But the truth is that my patient has only a short time to live. Shall I offer him that self-knowledge? True choice, full choice, Nietzsche responded, can blossom only in the sunshine of truth. How can it be otherwise? Realizing that Nietzsche could discourse persuasively and interminably in this abstract realm of truth and choice, Breuer saw he had to force him to speak more concretely. And my patient this morning what is his range of choices? Perhaps trust in God is his choice. That is not a choice for man. It is not a human choice, but a grasp for an illusion outside oneself. Such a choice, a choice for the other, for the supernatural, is always enfeebling. It always makes man less than he is. I love that which makes us more than we are. Let us not talk about man in the abstract, Breuer insisted, but about a single flesh-and-blood man, this patient of mine. Consider his situation. He has only days or weeks to live. What sense is there in talking choice to him? Undaunted, Nietzsche responded instantly. If he doesn't know he is about to die, how can your patient make a decision about how to die? How to die, Professor Nietzsche? Yes, he must decide how to face death, to talk to others, to give advice, to say the things he has been saving to say before his death, to take his leave of others or to be alone, to weep, to defy death, to curse it, to be thankful to it. You still discuss an ideal, an abstraction, but I am left to minister to the singular man, to the man of flesh and blood. I know that he will die, and die in great pain in a short time. Why bludgeon him with that? Above all, hope must be preserved. And who else but the physician can sustain hope? Hope! Hope is the final evil! Nietzsche all but shouted. In my book, Human, All Too Human, I suggested that when Pandora's box was opened and the evils Zeus had placed therein had escaped into man's world, there still remained, unbeknownst to anyone, one final evil, hope. Ever since then, man has mistakenly regarded the box and its contents of hope as a coffer of good fortune. But we have forgotten Zeus's wish that man continue to allow himself to be tormented— Hope is the worst of evils because it protracts torment. Your implication, then, is that one should shorten one's dying if one wishes. That is one possible choice, but only in the light of full knowledge. Breuer felt triumphant. He had been patient. He had allowed things to take their course, and now he would see the rewards of his strategy. The discussion was moving precisely in the direction he had wished. You are referring to suicide, Professor Nietzsche. Should suicide be a choice? Again, Nietzsche was firm and clear. Each person owns his own death, and each should enact it in his own way. Perhaps, only perhaps, there is a right by which we can take a man's life. But there is no right by which we can take a man's death. That is not comfort. That is cruelty. Breuer persisted. Would suicide ever be your choice? Dying is hard. I've always felt the final reward of the dead is to die no more. The final reward of the dead, to die no more? Breuer nodded appreciatively, walked back to his desk, sat down, and picked up his pen. May I jot that down? Yes, of course but let me not plagiarize myself. I did not just create that phrase. It appears in another book of mine, The Gay Science. Breuer could hardly believe his good fortune. In the past few minutes Nietzsche had mentioned both of the books Lou Salome had given him. Though excited by this discussion and reluctant to interpret its momentum, Breuer could not pass up the opportunity to resolve the dilemma of the two books. Professor Nietzsche... What you say about these two books of yours interests me greatly. How may I purchase them? A bookseller in Vienna, perhaps? Nietzsche could hardly hide his pleasure at the request. My publisher Schmeitzner in Chemnitz is in the wrong profession. His proper destiny would have been international diplomacy or perhaps espionage. He is a genius at intrigue, and my books are his greatest secret.' In eight years he has spent nothing, not one fenig on publicity. He has not sent out one copy for review, nor placed one book in one bookstore. So you will not find my books in any Viennese bookstore, nor even in a Viennese home. So few have been sold I know the name of most purchasers, and I recall no Viennese among my readers. You must, therefore, contact my publisher directly. Here is his address. Nietzsche opened his briefcase, jotted down a few lines on a scrap of paper, and handed it to Breuer. Although I could write him for you, I would prefer, if you don't mind, that he receive a letter from you directly. Perhaps an order from an eminent medical scientist may incite him to reveal the existence of my books to others. Tucking the paper into his vest pocket, Breuer replied, This very evening I'll send in an order for your books. But what a pity I cannot more quickly purchase or even borrow copies of them. Since I'm interested in the entire life of my patients, including their work and beliefs, your books might instruct my investigation of your condition to say nothing of the pleasure it would be to read your work and discuss it with you. Ah, Nietzsche replied, in that request I can assist you. My personal copies of these books are in my luggage. Let me lend them to you. I'll bring them to your office later today. Grateful that his ploy had worked, Breuer wanted to give something back to Nietzsche. To devote one's life to writing, to pour one's life into one's books, and then to have so few readers? Awful! For the many writers I know in Vienna, that would be a fate worse than death. How have you borne it? How do you bear it now? Nietzsche did not acknowledge Breuer's overture, either by smile or by tone of voice. Looking straight ahead, he said, Where is there a Viennese who remembers there is space and time outside of the Ringstrasse? I have patience. Perhaps by the year 2000 people will dare to read my books. He rose abruptly. Friday, then? Breuer felt rebuffed and dismissed. Why had Nietzsche so quickly grown cold? This was the second time today it had happened, the first being the footbridge incident, and each rebuff, Breuer realized, had followed his extending a sympathetic hand. What does this mean? he pondered. That Professor Nietzsche cannot tolerate others coming close or offering help. Then, He recalled Lou Salome's warning not to try to hypnotize Nietzsche, something to do with his strong feelings about power. Breuer allowed himself to imagine for a moment her response to Nietzsche's reaction. She would not have let it pass, but would have addressed it immediately and directly. Perhaps she would have said, Why is it, Friedrich, that every time someone says something kind to you, you bite their hand? How ironic, Breuer reflected, that though he had resented Lou Salome's impertinence, here he was conjuring up her image so that she might instruct him. But he quickly let these thoughts drift away. Perhaps she could say these things, but he could not. Certainly not when the frosty Professor Nietzsche was moving toward the door. Yes, Friday at two, Professor Nietzsche. Nietzsche bowed his head slightly and strode quickly out of the office. Breuer watched from the window as he descended the steps, irritably refused a fiacre, glanced up at the darkened sky, wrapped his scarf around his ears, and trudged off down the street. Chapter 7 At three the next morning, Breuer once again felt the ground liquefy beneath him. Once again while trying to find Berta, he fell forty feet to the marble slab adorned with mysterious symbols. He awoke in a panic, his heart racing, his nightshirt and pillow drenched with perspiration. Taking care not to awaken Matilda, he climbed out of bed, tiptoed to the toilet to urinate, changed into another nightshirt, turned his pillow over to the dry side, and tried to coax himself back to sleep but there would be no more sleep that night. He lay awake listening to Matilda's deep breathing. Everyone slept, all five children, as well as Louis, the house-servant, Marta, the cook, and Gretchen, the children's nurse, all asleep but him. He stood guard for the entire house. He, the one who worked hardest and most needed rest, it fell to him to stay awake and to worry for everyone. Now he suffered an onslaught of anxieties. Some he fended off, others kept coming. Dr. binswanger had written from the Bellevue Sanatorium that Berta was worse than ever. Even more unsettling was his news that Dr. Exner, a young staff psychiatrist, had fallen in love with her and transferred her care to another physician after proposing marriage to her. Had she returned his love? Surely she must have given him some sign. At least Dr. Exner had enough sense to be unmarried and to resign from the case with alacrity. The thought of Bertha smiling at young Exner in the same special way she had once smiled at him seared Breuer's thoughts. Bertha worse than ever! How stupid he had been to have boasted to her mother about his new hypnotic method! What must she think of him now? What must the whole medical community be saying behind his back? If only he hadn't touted her treatment in that case conference, the very one Lou Salome's brother had attended. Why couldn't he learn to keep his mouth shut? He shivered with humiliation and remorse. Had someone guessed that he was in love with Berta? Surely everyone had wondered why a physician would spend one to two hours every day with a patient month after month. He had known that Bertha was unnaturally attached to her father. Yet hadn't he, her physician, exploited this attachment for his own benefit? Why else would she have loved a man of his years, of his homeliness? Breuer cringed when he thought about the erection that always popped up whenever Bertha entered a trance. Thank God he had never given in to his feelings, never declared his love, never caressed her breasts, And then he imagined giving her a medical massage. Suddenly he was clasping her wrists firmly, extending her arms over her head, raising her nightgown, spreading her legs apart with his knees, putting his hands under her buttocks, and lifting her toward him. He had loosened his belt, and was opening his trousers when suddenly a horde of people, nurses, colleagues, Frau poppenheim burst into the room, He sank deeper into the bed, ravaged and defeated. Why did he torment himself so? Over and over he surrendered and let worry swarm over him. There was plenty of Jewish worry, the rising anti-Semitism which had blocked his university career, the emergence of Schörnerer's new party, the German National Association, the vicious anti-Semitic speeches at the meeting of the Austrian Reform Association inciting the artisan guilds to attack jews finance Jews, press Jews, railway Jews, theater Jews. Only this week Schoenerer had demanded the reinstatement of the old legal restrictions on Jewish life and incited riots throughout the city. It would, Breuer knew, only worsen. Already it had invaded the university— Student bodies had recently decreed that, since Jews were born without honor, they would henceforth not be permitted to obtain satisfaction through a duel for insults suffered. Invectives about Jew doctors had not yet been heard, but it was just a matter of time. He listened to Matilda's light snores. There lay his real worry. She had folded her life into his. She was loving— She mothered his children. Her dowry from the Altman family had made him a wealthy man. Though she was bitter about Bertha, who could blame her? She had a right to her bitterness. Breuer looked again at her. When he married her, she was the most beautiful woman he had ever seen, and still was. She was more beautiful than the Empress, or than Bertha, or even Lou Salome. What man in Vienna did not envy him? Why, then, could he not touch her, kiss her? Why did her open mouth frighten him? Why this frightening notion that he had to escape her grasp, that she was the source of his anguish? He watched her in the darkness, her sweet lips, the graceful dome of her cheekbones, her satiny skin. He imagined her face aging, wrinkling, her skin hardening into leathery plaques, falling away, exposing the ivory skull beneath. He watched the swell of her breasts, resting upon the rib bars of her thoracic cage, and recalled once walking on a windswept beach coming upon the carcass of a giant fish, its side partially decomposed, its bleached, bare ribs grinning up at him. Royer tried to wash death from his mind, He hummed his favorite incantation. Lucretius' phrase, Where death is, I am not. Where I am, death is not. Why worry? But it didn't help. He shook his head, trying to shake off these morbid thoughts. Where had they come from? From speaking with Nietzsche about death? No, rather than inserting these thoughts into his mind, Nietzsche simply released them. They had always been there. He had thought them all before yet where in his mind were they housed when he wasn't thinking about them? Freud was right. There had to be a reservoir of complex thoughts in the brain, beyond consciousness but on alert, ready at any time to be mustered and marched onto the stage of conscious thinking. And not just thoughts in this non-conscious reservoir, but feelings as well. A few days ago, while riding in a fiacre, Breuer had glanced at the fiacre next to him. Its two horses trotted along, pulling the cab in which sat two passengers, a dour-faced elderly couple. But there was no driver. A ghost fiacre! Fear flashed through him, and he had had an instantaneous diaphoresis. His clothes drenched within seconds, and then the driver of the fiacre came into view. He had simply been bending over to adjust his boot. At first, Breuer had laughed at his foolish reaction. But the more he thought about it, the more he realized that, rationalist and freethinker though he might be, his mind nonetheless harbored clusters of supernatural terror, and not too deep either. They were on call, only seconds from the surface. Ah! for a tonsil forceps that could rip out these clusters, roots and all. Still no sleep on the horizon. Breuer stood up to adjust his twisted nightshirt and to fluff the pillows. He thought again about Nietzsche. What a strange man. What stirring talks they'd had. He liked such talking. It made him feel at ease in his element. What was Nietzsche's granite sentence? Become who you are. But who am I? Breuer asked himself. What was I meant to become? His father had been a Talmudic scholar. Perhaps philosophic disputation was in his blood. He was glad for the few philosophy courses he had taken at university, more than most physicians, because at his father's insistence he had spent his first year there in the faculty of philosophy before entering his medical studies and glad he had maintained his relationship with Brentano and Jodel, his philosophy professors. He really should see them more often. There was something cleansing about discourse in the realm of pure ideas. It was there, perhaps only there, that he was unsullied by Bertha and carnality. What would it be like to dwell all the time like Nietzsche in that realm? And the way Nietzsche dared to say things, imagine, to say that hope is the greatest evil, that God is dead, that truth is an error without which we cannot live, that the enemies of truth are not lies but convictions, that the final reward of the dead is to die no more, that physicians have no right to deprive a man of his own death, evil thoughts, He had debated Nietzsche on each, yet it was a mock debate. Deep in his heart he knew Nietzsche was right. And Nietzsche's freedom, what would it be like to live as he lived? No house, no obligations, no salaries to pay, no children to raise, no schedule, no role, no place in society. There was something alluring about such freedom." Why did Friedrich Nietzsche have so much of it, and Josef Breuer so little? Nietzsche has simply seized his freedom. Why can't I, groaned Breuer? He lay in bed growing dizzy with such thoughts until the alarm rang at six. Good morning, Dr. Breuer. Frau Becker greeted him when he arrived at his office at ten-thirty after his morning round of home visits. That Professor Nietzsche was waiting in the vestibule when I arrived to open the office. He brought these books for you and asked me to tell you that they are his personal copies with handwritten marginal notations containing ideas for future work. They are very private, he said, and you should show them to no one. He looked terrible, by the way, and acted very strangely. How so, Frau Becker? He kept blinking his eyes as though he couldn't see or didn't want to see what he was seeing. And his face was pallid, as though he were going to faint. I asked him if he needed any help, some tea, or whether he wanted to lie down in your office. I thought I was being kind, but he seemed displeased, almost angry. Then he wheeled around without a word and went stumbling down the stairs. Breuer took Nietzsche's packet from Frau Becker, two books tidily wrapped in a sheet of yesterday's Neue Freie Presse, and tied with a short piece of cord. He unwrapped them and placed them on his desk next to the copies given to him by Lou Salome. Nietzsche may have exaggerated by saying that he would have the only copies of these books in Vienna, but undoubtedly— He was now the only Viennese with two copies of them. Oh, Dr. Breuer, aren't these the same books that Grand Russian Lady left? Frau Becker had just brought in the morning mail, and, removing the newspaper and cord from his desk, noticed the titles of the books. How lies breed lies, Breuer thought, and what a vigilant life a liar is forced to live. Frau Becker, though formal and efficient, also liked to visit with patience. Was she capable of mentioning to Nietzsche the Russian lady and her gift of books? He had to warn her. Frau Becker, there's something I must tell you. That Russian woman, Fräulein Salome, the one you've taken such a liking to, is, or was, a close friend of Professor Nietzsche's. She was worried about the professor and was responsible for his referral to me through friends. Only he doesn't know that, as now he and Fräulein Salome are on the worst of terms. If I am to have any chance of helping him, he must never learn of my meeting with her. Frau Becker nodded with her usual discretion, then glanced out the window to see two patients arriving. Herr Hauptmann and Frau Klein, whom do you wish to see first? Giving Nietzsche a specific appointment time had been unusual. Ordinarily, Breuer, like other Viennese physicians, merely specified a day and saw patients in the order of their arrival. Send in Herr Hauptmann. He needs to return to work. After his last morning patient, Breuer decided to study Nietzsche's books before his visit the next day and asked Frau Becker to tell his wife that he'd not come upstairs until dinner was actually on the table. Then he picked up the two cheaply bound volumes, each less than three hundred pages. He would have preferred to read the copies Lou Salome had given him, so that he could underline and write in the margins as he read. But he felt compelled to read Nietzsche's own copies, as if to minimize his duplicity. Nietzsche's personal markings were distracting, Much underlining, and in the margins, many exclamation points and cries of yes, yes, and occasionally no, or idiot. Also many scribbled notes, which Breuer could not make out. They were strange books, unlike any others he had ever seen. Each book contained hundreds of numbered sections, many of which bore little relation to one another. The sections were brief, at the most two or three paragraphs, often only a few sentences, and sometimes simply an aphorism. Thoughts are the shadows of our feelings, always darker, emptier, and simpler. No one ever dies of fatal truths nowadays. There are too many antidotes. What good is a book that does not carry us beyond all books? Evidently, Professor Nietzsche felt qualified to discourse on every subject— music, art, nature, politics, hermeneutics, history, psychology. Lou Salome had described him as a great philosopher. Perhaps. Breuer wasn't ready to render judgment on the content of his books. But it was clear that Nietzsche was a poetic writer, a true dictor. Some of Nietzsche's declarations appeared ridiculous— a silly pronouncement, for example, that fathers and sons always have more in common than mothers and daughters. But many of the aphorisms stung him into self-reflection. What is the seal of liberation? No longer being ashamed in front of oneself. He was struck by one particularly arresting passage. Just as the bones— Flesh, intestines, and blood vessels are enclosed in a skin that makes the sight of man endurable, so the agitations and passions of the soul are enveloped in vanity. It is the skin of the soul. What to make of these writings? They defied characterization except that, as a body, they seemed deliberately provocative— they challenged all conventions, questioned, even denigrated conventional virtues, and extolled anarchy. Breuer glanced at his watch. one fifteen. No more time for leisurely browsing. Knowing he would be summoned for dinner any minute, he sought passages that might offer him practical help in tomorrow's meeting with Nietzsche. Freud's hospital schedule did not usually allow him to come to dinner on Thursdays, but today Breuer had invited him especially so they could go over the consultation with Nietzsche. After a full Viennese dinner of savory cabbage and raisin soup, Wiener schnitzel, spätzle, brussels sprouts, baked breaded tomatoes, Marta's homemade pumpernickel, baked apple with cinnamon and schlock, and seltzer water, Breuer and Freud retired to the study. As he described the medical history and symptoms of the patient he was calling Herr Eckhart Müller, Breuer noticed Freud's eyelids slowly closing. He had confronted Freud's postprandial lethargy before and knew how to deal with it. "'So, Sig,' he said briskly, "'let's get you prepared for your medical matriculation examinations. I'll pretend I'm Professor Nortnagel." I couldn't sleep last night, I've got some dyspepsia, and Matilda is after me again for being late to dinner, so I'm cross enough today to imitate the brute. Breuer adopted a thick North German accent and the rigid authoritarian posture of a Prussian. All right, Dr. Freud, I have given you the medical history on Herr Eckhardt Müller. Now you are ready for your physical examination. Tell me, What will you be looking for? Freud's eyes opened fully, and he ran his finger around his collar to loosen it. He did not share Breuer's fondness for these mock exams. Though he agreed they were good pedagogically, they always agitated him. Undoubtedly, he began, the patient has a lesion in his central nervous system. His cephalgia, his deteriorating vision, his father's neurological history— His disturbances in equilibrium all point to that. I'm suspicious of a brain tumor, possibly disseminated sclerosis. I'd do a thorough neurological examination, checking the cranial nerves with great care, especially the first, second, fifth, and eleventh. I'd also check the visual fields carefully. The tumor may be pressing on the optic nerve. What about the other visual phenomena, Dr. Freud?' The scintillations, the blurred vision in the morning, which improves later in the day. Do you happen to know of a cancer that can do this? I'd get a good look at the retina. He may have some macular degeneration. Macular degeneration that improves in the afternoons? Remarkable! That's a case we should write up for publication. And his periodic fatigue, his rheumatoid symptoms, and his vomiting of blood? That's caused by a cancer, too? Herr Professor Nortnagel, the patient may have two diseases, fleas and lice, too, as Opolzer used to say. He may be anemic. How would you examine for anemia? Do a hemoglobin and a stool guayak? Nein, nein! Mein Gott! What do they teach you in the Viennese medical schools? Examine this your five senses? "'Forget the laboratory tests, your Jewish medicine. "'The laboratory only confirms what your physical examination already tells you. "'Suppose you're on the battlefield, doctor. "'You're going to call for a stool test? "'I'd check the patient's colour, "'especially the creases of his palms and his mucosal membranes. "'Gum's tongue conjunctiva. "'Right. "'But you forgot the most important one.' THE FINGERNAILS! Breuer cleared his throat, continuing to play Nortnagel. Now, my aspiring young doctor, he said, I give you the results of the physical. First, the neurological examination is completely and absolutely normal. Not a single negative finding, so much for a brain tumour or disseminated sclerosis, which Dr. Freud the unlikely possibilities in the first place, unless you know of cases that persist for years and erupt periodically with severe 24 to 48-hour symptomology and then dissolve entirely with no neurological deficit. No, no, no. This is not structural disease, but an episodic physiological disorder." Breuer drew himself up and, exaggerating his Prussian accent, pronounced, There's only one possible diagnosis, Dr. Freud. Freud flushed deeply. I don't know. He looked so forlorn that Breuer halted the game, dismissed Nortnagel, and softened his tone. Yes, you do, Sig. We discussed it last time. Hemicrania, or migraine. And don't feel ashamed about not thinking of it. Migraine is a house-call disease. Clinical aspirants rarely ever see it, because migraine sufferers seldom go into the hospital. Without question, Herr Müller has a severe case of hemicrania. He has all the classic symptoms. Let's review them. Intermittent attacks of unilateral throbbing headaches, often familial, by the way accompanied by anorexia, nausea, and vomiting, and visual aberrations, prodromal light flashing, even hemianopsia. Freud had taken a small notebook from his inside coat pocket and was jotting down notes. I'm beginning to remember some of my reading about hemicrania, Joseph. Dubois raymonds theory is that it's a vascular disease, the pain caused by a spasm of the brain arterioles, dubois Raymond is right about it being vascular, but not all patients have arterial spasm. I've seen many with the opposite, a dilation of the vessels. Molendorf thinks the pain is caused not by spasm, but by a stretching of the relaxed blood vessels. What about his loss of vision? There's your fleas and lice. It's the result of something else, not the migraine.' I couldn't focus my ophthalmoscope on his retina. Something obstructs the view. It's not in the lens, not a cataract, but in the cornea. I don't know the cause of this corneal opacity, but I've seen it before. Perhaps it's edema of the cornea. That would account for the fact that his vision is worse in the morning. Corneal edema is greatest after the eyes have been closed all night and gradually resolves when fluid is evaporated from the opened eyes during the day. His weakness? He is slightly anemic, possibly gastric bleeding, but probably dietary anemia. His dyspepsia is so great that he can't tolerate meat for weeks at a time. Freud continued to take notes. What about prognosis? Did the same disease kill his father? He asked me the same question, Sig. In fact, I've never had a patient before who absolutely insists on all the blunt facts, he made me promise to be truthful with him and then posed three questions. Will his disease be progressive? Will he go blind? Will he die of it? Have you ever heard of a patient talking like that? I promised I'd answer him in our session tomorrow. What will you tell him? I can give him a lot of reassurance based on an excellent study by Liveling, a British physician, the best medical research I've seen coming out of England. You should read his monograph. Breuer held up a thick volume and handed it to Freud, who slowly leafed through the pages. It's not translated yet, Breuer continued, but your English is good enough. Liveling reports on a large sample of migraine sufferers and concludes that migraine becomes less potent as the patient ages, and also that it is not associated with any other brain disease. So... Even though the disease is inherited, it's highly unlikely that his father died of the same disease. Of course, Breuer continued, Livling's research method is sloppy. The monograph doesn't make it clear whether his results are based on longitudinal or cross-sectional data. Do you understand what I mean by that, Sig? Freud responded immediately, apparently more at home with research method than with clinical medicine. The longitudinal method means following individual patients for years and discovering that their attacks lessen as they grow older, does it not? Precisely, said Breuer. And the cross-sectional method, Freud interrupted like an eager schoolboy in the front row of the class. The cross-sectional method is a single observation at one point in time, in this case, that the older patients in the sample show fewer migraine attacks than younger ones. Enjoying his friend's pleasure, Breuer gave him another opportunity to shine. Can you guess which method is more accurate? The cross-sectional method can't be very accurate. The sample may contain very few old patients with severe migraine, not because the migraine gets better, but because such patients are too sick or too discouraged with medical doctors to agree to be studied. Exactly and a shortcoming I don't think Lively realized. An excellent answer, Sig. Shall we have a celebratory cigar? Freud eagerly accepted one of Breuer's fine Turkish cigars, and the two men lit up and savored the aroma. Now, Freud commented, can we talk about the rest of the case? He then added in a loud whisper, The interesting part. Breuer smiled. Maybe I shouldn't say this, Freud continued. But since Nortnagels left the room, I'll confess to you privately that the psychological aspects of this case intrigue me more than the medical picture. Breuer noticed that his young friend did, indeed, appear more animated. Freud's eyes were sparkling with curiosity as he asked, How suicidal is this patient? Were you able to advise him to seek counsel? Now it was Breuer's turn to feel sheepish. He flushed as he remembered how, in their last talk, he had exuded confidence in his interviewing skills. He's a strange man, Sig. I've never met such resistance. It was like a brick wall, a smart brick wall. He gave me plenty of good openings. He spoke of feeling well only fifty days last year, of black moods, of being betrayed— of living in total isolation, of being a writer without readers, of having severe insomnia with malignant nocturnal thoughts. But, Joseph, those are just the types of openings you said you were looking for. Exactly. Yet every time I pursued one of them, I came up empty-handed. Yes, he acknowledges often being ill, but insists it's his body that is ill, not him, not his essence. As for black moods, he says he is proud of having the courage to experience black moods. Proud of the courage to have black moods. Can you believe it? Crazy talk. Betrayal? Yes, I suspect he refers to what happened with Fräulein Salome, but he claims to have overcome it and does not wish to discuss it. As for suicide, he denies being suicidal, but defends the patient's right to choose his own death. Though he might welcome death, he says that the final reward of the dead is to die no more. He has too much still to accomplish, too many books to write. In fact, he says his head is pregnant with books, and he thinks that his cephalgia is cerebral labor pains. Freud shook his head in sympathy with Breuer's consternation. Cerebral labor pain, what a metaphor! like Minerva born from the brow of Zeus. Strange thoughts, cerebral labor pain, choosing one's death, the courage to have black moods. He's not without wit, Joseph. Is it, I wonder, a crazy wit or a wise craziness? Breuer shook his head. Freud sat back, exhaled a long fume of blue smoke, and watched it ascend and fade away, before he spoke again. The case becomes more fascinating every day. So what about the Fräulein's report of suicidal despair? Is he lying to her? Or to you? Or to himself? Lying to himself, Sig? How do you lie to yourself? Who is the liar? Who is being lied to? Perhaps part of him is suicidal, but the conscious part doesn't know it. "'Broyer turned to look more closely at his young friend. "'He expected to see a grin on his face, but Freud was entirely serious. "'Sig, more and more you talk of this little unconscious homunculus "'living a separate life from its host. "'Please, Sig, follow my advice. "'Speak about this theory only to me. "'No, no, I won't call it a theory, even. "'There's no evidence whatsoever for it. "'Let's call it a fanciful notion.' Don't talk about this fanciful notion to Brucha. It would relieve his guilt for not having the courage to promote a Jew. Freud responded with unusual resoluteness. It will remain between us until it is proven by sufficient evidence. Then I shall not refrain from publication. For the first time Breuer became aware that there was not much boyishness left in his young friend. Instead, there was germinating an audaciousness a willingness to stand up for his convictions, qualities he wished he had himself. Sig, you speak of evidence as though this could be a subject for scientific inquiry. But this homunculus has no concrete reality. It's simply a construct like a platonic ideal. What would possibly constitute evidence? Can you give me even one example? and don't use dreams, I won't accept them as evidence. They too are insubstantial constructs. You yourself have supplied evidence, Josef. You tell me that Berta Poppenheim's emotional life is dictated by events that occurred precisely twelve months ago, past events of which she has no conscious knowledge, and yet they are described accurately in her mother's diary of a year before. To my mind— this is equivalent to laboratory proof. But this rests on the assumption that Bertha is a reliable witness, that she really does not recall these past events. But, 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 there it is again, Breuer thought, that demon but. He felt like punching himself. All his life he had taken vacillating butt positions, and now he had done it again with Freud as well as with Nietzsche when in his heart he suspected they were both right. Freud jotted down a few more sentences in his notebook. Joseph, do you think I can see Frau Pappenheim's diary sometime? I've returned it to her, but I believe I can retrieve it again. Freud took out his watch. I've got to get back to the hospital soon for Nortnagel's rounds. But before I go... Tell me what you're going to do with your reluctant patient. You mean what I'd like to do? Three steps. I'd like to establish a good doctor-patient rapport with him. Then I'd like to hospitalize him at a clinic for a few weeks to observe his hemicrania and regulate his medication. And then during these weeks, I'd like to meet with him frequently for in-depth discussions of his despair. Breuer sighed. But knowing him, there's little likelihood he'll cooperate with any of this. Any ideas, Sig? Freud, who was still looking through Liveling's monograph, now held up a page for Breuer to scan. Here, listen to this. Under etiology, Lively says episodes of migraine have been induced by dyspepsia, by eye strain, and by stress. Prolonged bed rest may be advisable. Young migraine sufferers may have to be removed from the stress of school and tutored in the peace of the home. Some physicians advise changing one's occupation to a less demanding one. Breuer looked quizzical. So? I believe that's our answer. Stress. Why not make stress the key to your treatment plan? Take the position that, to overcome his migraine, Herr Müller must reduce his stress, including mental stress. Suggest to him that stress is stifled emotion and that, as in the treatment of Bertha, it can be reduced by providing an outlet. Use the chimney-sweeping method. You can even show him this statement by Lively and invoke the power of medical authority. Freud noticed Breuer smiling at his words and asked, You think this is a foolish plan? Not at all, Sig. In fact, I think it's excellent advice, and I shall follow it carefully. The part that made me smile was the last thing you said, invoke the power of medical authority. You'd have to know this patient to appreciate the joke, but the idea of expecting him to bow to medical or to any other type of authority strikes me as comical. And opening Nietzsche's The Gay Science, Breuer read aloud several passages he'd marked. Herr Müller contests all authority and conventions. For example, he stands virtues on their head and renames them vices, as in this view of faithfulness. Obstinately, he clings to something he has come to see through, but he calls it faithfulness. And of politeness? He is so polite. Yes, he always carries a biscuit for Cerberus, and is so timid that he thinks every one is Cerberus, even you and I. That is his politeness. And listen to this fascinating metaphor for both visual impairment and despair. To find everything profound, that is an inconvenient trait. It makes one strain one's eyes all the time, and in the end one finds more than one might have wished. Freud had been listening with interest. To see more than one wishes, he murmured. I wonder what he has seen. May I take a look at the book? But Breuer had his answer ready. Sig, he made me give an oath that I show this book to no one, since it has personal notations. My rapport with him is so tenuous that for now I had better honour his request. Later, perhaps. One of the strange things about my interview with Herr Müller— he went on, stopping at the last of his markers, was that whenever I tried to express empathy with him, he took offense and broke the rapport between us. Ah, footbridge! Yes, here's the passage I'm looking for. As Breuer read, Freud closed his eyes, the better to concentrate. There was a time in our lives when we were so close that nothing seemed to obstruct our friendship and brotherhood and only a small footbridge separated us. Just as you were about to step on it, I asked you, do you want to cross the footbridge to me? Immediately you did not want to any more, and when I asked you again you remained silent. Since then mountains and torrential rivers, and whatever separates and alienates, have been cast between us, and even if we wanted to get together we couldn't, but when you now think of that little footbridge, words fail you and you sob and marvel. Breuer put the book down. What do you make of it, Sig? I'm not sure. Freud rose and paced before the bookcase as he talked. It's a curious little story. Let's reason it out. One person is about to cross the footbridge, that is, get closer to the other, when the second person invites him to do the very thing he planned. Then the first person cannot take the step, because now it would seem as though he were submitting to the other, power apparently getting in the way of closeness. Yes, yes, you're right, Sig. Excellent. I see it now. That means that Herr Muller will interpret any expression of positive sentiment as a bid for power. A peculiar notion. It makes it almost impossible to get close to him. In another section somewhere in here, he says that we feel hatred toward those who see our secrets and catch us in tender feelings. What we need at that moment is not sympathy, but to regain our power over our own emotions. Joseph, said Freud, sitting down again and tapping off his ash into the ashtray, last week I observed Billroth using his ingenious new surgical technique to remove a cancerous stomach. Now, as I listen to you, it seems to me you have to perform a psychological surgical procedure equally complex and delicate. You know he's suicidal from the Fräulein's report, yet you cannot tell him you know. You must persuade him to reveal his despair, yet if you succeed, he will hate you for shaming him. You must gain his confidence, yet if you act in a sympathetic manner toward him, he will accuse you of trying to gain power over him. Psychological surgery. It's interesting to hear you put it that way, said Breuer. Perhaps we're developing a whole medical subspecialty. Wait, there's something else I wanted to read you that seems relevant. He turned the pages of Human All Too Human for a couple of minutes. I can't find the passage now, but its point is that the seeker after truth must undergo a personal psychological analysis. He terms it moral dissection. In fact, he goes so far as to say that the errors of even the greatest philosophers were caused by ignorance of their own motivation he claims that in order to discover the truth, one must first know oneself fully. And to do that, one must remove oneself from one's customary point of view, even from one's own century and country, and then examine oneself from a distance. To analyze one's own psyche? Not an easy task, said Freud, rising to leave but a task that obviously would be facilitated by the presence of an objective, informed guide. My thought exactly, Breuer responded, as he escorted Freud down the hallway. Now the hard part, to persuade him of that. I don't think it will be difficult, said Freud. You have on your side both his own arguments about psychological dissection and the medical theory about stress and migraine, subtly invoked, of course. I don't see how you can fail to persuade your reluctant philosopher of the wisdom in a course of self-examination under your guidance. Good night, Joseph. Thank you, Sig. And Royer clasped his shoulder briefly. It's been a good talk. The student has taught the teacher. 26 November, 1882 My dear Fritz, Neither mother nor I have heard from you in weeks. This is no time for you to disappear. Your Russian Simeon continues to spread her lies about you. She shows that disgraceful picture of you and that Jew, Rhea, in harness to her and jokes to everyone that you like the taste of her whip. I warned you to retrieve that picture. She will blackmail us with it all our lives. She mocks you everywhere, and her paramour, Rhea, joins in the chorus. She says that Nietzsche, the otherworldly philosopher, is only interested in one thing, her, a part of her anatomy. I cannot bring myself to repeat her words, her filth. I leave it to your imagination. She is now living with your friend Rhea in open vice before the eyes of his mother, a fine lot, all of them. None of this is unexpected behavior, not unexpected by me, anyway, I still smart at the way you dismissed my warnings at Tautenberg. But it is now becoming a more deadly game. She is infiltrating Basel with her lies. I have learned that she has written letters both to Kemp and to Wilhelm. Fritz, hear me. She will not stop until she has cost you your pension. You may choose silence, but I will not. I shall call for an official police investigation of her behavior with Rhea.' If I am successful, and I must have your backing, she will be deported for immorality within the month. Fritz, send me your address. Your only sister, Elizabeth.